Hey everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. Our culture is obsessed with the pursuit of fame. But what happens when the fame fades away? We're going to talk all about that on today's episode of Music Therapy. Hey everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker. I'm a musician based here in Chicago, Illinois, and I am also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Music Therapy is a mental health podcast for musicians and music fans. We talk about mental health, creativity, music careers, and the basic existential meaning of being a musician. Visit musictherapypodcast.com to look at upcoming events and listen to previous episodes. Please subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. I hope you guys are doing well. This was a little bit of a choppy month in terms of release. I went on vacation at the beginning of the month and then I got COVID in the middle of the month. You know, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. I'm fine now. Thanks for asking. I hope you guys are doing well and being safe. Let me tell you about our next group session. That is going to be on Wednesday, August 10th at Cafe Mustache in Chicago. And that is going to feature Chicago band Spread Joy. Spread Joy was supposed to be on a group session a couple months ago, but their drummer sprained his ankle. And so we had to reschedule. So I'm super excited to have Spread Joy on group session. They are an amazing band. I love their music. That's going to be Cafe Mustache on Wednesday, August 10th, 8 p.m. Come on out and see us. So today is a first for the Music Therapy Podcast because I'm talking to an author. Nick Twerden wrote the book Exit Stage Left, The Curious Afterlife of Pop Stars, and we are going to talk all about this book today. Nick Twerden is an author and journalist whose work has appeared on both sides of the Atlantic. He has written widely on the arts, health, and family. He is the author of several books, including Exit Stage Left, the Smallest Things on the Enduring Power of Family, and A Life Less Lonely, What We Can All Do to Lead More Connected, Kinder Lives. And today, we're digging into his newest book, Exit Stage Left, The Curious Afterlife of Pop Stars. The engineer of music therapy, Joshua Wentz, actually passed this book along to me after he read an excerpt in The Guardian. And once I read that, I was instantly into this book. This is right up my alley. And I'll put a link to the article in the show notes at musictherapypodcast.com if you want to check out the article. The book is basically about what happens when fame fades. Nick Jewerden talked to countless pop stars about their personal experiences, and this is what this book is all about. Let's turn now to my conversation with Nick Jewerden. Okay, so I am here today with author Nick Dwerden, who is uh, the author of Exit Stage Left, The Curious Afterlife of Pop Stars. This is a book about how singers and musicians navigate their life after the first flush of fame, how they endure, reinvent themselves, and keep life interesting for themselves. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Nick. Thank you for having me. Um, also, who is joining me today is Joshua Wentz. Joshua is my bandmate, and Joshua also uh, Josh also engineers the podcast. And Josh is the person who shared this book. There was an article in the Guardian about your book, and yes. he came upon it, and he thought it was interesting, and he shared it with me. And um, yeah, I was immediately drawn to it. I love reading about 
um, musicians beyond just listening to their music and how they how their careers and their creative processes work. So this was this was a great find. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear you say that. It's, it's a subject that's interested me for a long time. And when I wrote that Guardian piece, um, it was viewed one million times in three days. So I I guess it it resonates with people, not just myself. So I was quite happy with that. Um, yeah, all over the place. I, I've been contacted ever since by, I suppose, music fans, but also musicians themselves who are going through uh, similar experiences uh, to the ones covered in the book. So you've been interested in this for a while. Can you talk more about that? What made you want to write this book? Well, um, I'm old now. I've been doing. I've been writing about music and pop stars for about 30 years. So I started when I was 20, 21 years old, and you know it was all incredibly exciting then. And I was interviewing bands who were also whose members were also 20, 21 years old, and they they thought they were going to take over the world. They were going to be the new Beatles, the new Stones, the new Madonna, whoever. They had that amazing. I suppose the naivety, but also the energy of youth. And then as I got older, the bands got older and I interviewed them when they were 25 and 35 and then beyond. And I became increasingly interested in talking to them once the spotlight had kind of swung away from them a little bit, because this is an industry that fetishizes the new and, and novelty. It thrives on novelty. And, you know, that whole um, 15 minutes of fame thing. So those bands who are, I suppose, both talented and lucky enough to break through and have a moment, I think almost all of them do realize that it is just a moment because the zeitgeist does move on. We are constantly hungry for the next big thing and then the next big thing after that. And I became increasingly interested in, yeah, but what happened to last week's next big thing and the week before that? What, what's it like to have the world's attention and then all of a sudden find yourself no longer quite as exciting to to the public as you were before because you're not going to just disappear and curl up and die you, you've still got things to stay you're still young you're still a creative spirit and I wanted to yeah I suppose to look at what 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 it's like to make pop music ephemeral pop music your lifetime endeavor um, and so I I asked a, a whole bunch of people and very kindly 50 of them from the the late 60s up until i guess 10 15 years ago you know what it's like for them and uh, they a lot of them were really fulsome in their answers they really indulged in the topic more openly than i think i would have expected i was struck by how vulnerable many of the interviews were yeah and it's not something i'm used to as a journalist when i when i interviewed bands for newspapers or magazines both here in the us i used to write for a lot of music magazines in in america it's always more or less the same. There's a familiar narrative. You're interviewing a band because they've got a new album out. They're about to go on tour. Oh, look, they've just won a Grammy Award. Isn't that great? They're playing Madison Square Gardens. That must be exciting. And that's fine. It's a nice, glitzy, showy story. But you don't really get very deep. Um, and in this book, um, because they were so open to me, I, I, I managed to get much deeper, I suppose, into their psyches and, and just ask them, yeah, what's it like to sustain a career? Um, these pe- these are people who have lived out their wildest dreams. You know, I don't know anyone in my social circle who has dared to even try to live out their wildest dreams, much less succeed. So I guess that must give you quite an interesting perspective on life, but also on yourself. I mean, look at me. I've just stood in front of a stage in front of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. I must be amazing. So when 
life happens to you and things become more complicated, it's really interesting to see how they react because they are tough entrepreneurial characters and they're not going to give up without a fight. And nobody in my book really, I think, is a victim and no one is a failure. I mean, they've sustained their careers for decades and sold, whether it's hundreds of thousands of records or millions, they are all still doing to a greater or lesser degree what they feel they were put on this earth to do. And mm. I kind of came away reeling in admiration for their bloody mindedness, their their tunnel vision. I'm going to sing and I'm going to write songs and I'm going to do it forever. You think, wow, you know, hats off to you. And in some ways to me, it felt like they almost couldn't not like it was, I can't, yeah. I'm not happy unless I'm creating this. This is who I am. Yeah. 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 It's interesting that a lot of them I found, you know, I think, well, a lot of the people I interviewed in the book suggested that ego plays a big part in it, but I think it only really plays a small part. Yes, you need an ego to stand in front of a stage and essentially say to an audience, love me, love me. But it's just about having that talent. If you're lucky enough to have a particular gift where you can write a song that the whole world sings, it's going to be very difficult to walk away, isn't it? And I found that lots of them, that my interview is in the book, when the spotlight did swing elsewhere, they were a little bit relieved because they could kind of step off that giddy carousel of fame and they could still focus on writing songs. Many of them had a cult audience. Many of them still had a huge audience, but they weren't photographed everywhere. They weren't. They weren't hounded and they weren't at fame's beck and call anymore. They could kind of live their lives a little more naturally, a little like you and me. They just carried on singing songs. Well, obviously you do it as, as, as a job as well. So they write songs not because of market forces, but because they are expressing themselves throughout life. And by extension, I guess they are soundtracking our lives as well. And I really admired that in them, that they wouldn't give in and they'd keep on going. Do you think that the music industry is special you know, you, you were talking about a kind of, you, you get a short amount of time for most people mm. in the spotlight. Do you feel like that's particular to the music industry in, or, or, or as far as the arts are concerned, is it harder to have a sustained career as a musician than it maybe seems a to be. painter author? Yeah. I get the sense. I don't, I wonder whether it's changing slightly now, but I get the sense that, you know, music is something we listen to, but ever since MTV, it's also something that we look at. Mm. So music is very much tied into image. And a lot of the bands I spoke to were, you know, admitted that they said, look, the industry, and I suppose by extension, us, the listeners and the viewers, we want our pop stars to be young and sexy and with cheekbones and hips and, you know, looking good in leather trousers or whatever. And we don't really like them when they are in middle age, because mm. no one really likes midlife. It's a difficult <laughs> transitional liminal period where things have kind of gone wrong in our lives, perhaps not universally, but, you know, we struggle in midlife. And so we don't want to see a pop star articulate that struggle. So many said to me that um, there is a belief that they write their best songs between the ages of 23 and 27. I think that Bob Dylan initially said something like that, that he couldn't write the songs he wrote in his 20s, in his 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond. They wouldn't have the same impetus because initially those songs came out because they had to. They were almost burning inside him. After that, it just became his job. 
he gets up every morning and he writes songs. That's what the pop star does. They find more words to rhyme with love over and over again, and they set it to a melody. Mm -hmm. So that must be quite hard. And it was what was interesting that, that yeah, several in, among them, one of my interviews was Alex Capranos from um, Franz Ferdinand. Mm -hmm. And I really got the idea that he'd given this topic an awful lot of thought. And he was one of the people that said to me that, Yes, we like our pop stars to be young and sexy and vulnerable. We don't like the midlife thing. But if they manage to live and survive into old age, we love them again then because then suddenly they become national treasures and we, we reevaluate their contribution to their arts. The record company will suddenly put out the back catalogue again in, in vinyl, um, you know, and they will, whichever music magazines continue to exist or the newspaper's art section will reevaluate the career and write loving reviews about them. And I think that bears out, doesn't it? You know, Bob Dylan recently had his first number one Billboard album at the age mm -hmm. of 78. Well, uh, David Bowie struggled in the 90s with Tin Machine. Nobody seemed to much like it. By the time he was in his 60s, he could do no wrong. I think the same is true of someone like Dolly Parton, who seems to be enjoying herself, you know, much more now than she did, you know, a few years ago. And, mm -hmm. you know, Glastonbury was just last weekend here in the UK. And Diana Ross played to one of the biggest audiences I think I've ever seen. There. I wasn't there. I watched it on TV. But, you know, the, the drones panned back and panned back and panned back. And there was just this sea of people for Diana Ross, who must be 75 if she's a day. So they, it, it's a thriving scene at the beginning and a thriving scene towards the end. It's that bit in the middle that's difficult. And I speak to those who are mostly in the middle and navigating it. So it's a book about pop stars, but it's not really about music. It's about life and, yeah, how we navigate life. Josh, you were talking about how you feel musicians as artists in particular seem to be more fused or identified with their music. Yeah, yeah um, I think this, the, the idea of the pop star and the identity uh, tied to it kind of along the, along the lines of what the lead from Franz Ferdinand was saying with image, I, I really feel like we expect that the person up there singing the song, it like truly means something to them in a way that you don't yeah. believe that Steve Buscemi believes what he's saying when he's acting um, yeah. or that an author might necessarily believe a character in the book that they write. And so mm. it seems like a lot of times the struggle, uh, you see the struggle with mm. image or with change with uh, musicians. I know that the lead singer of the darkness in your book mm. specifically mentioned trying to remain a rock band while the industry wants you to continue to polish yourself to become something that yeah. then doesn't really represent rock anymore. And to him, that was, uh, that was something that he struggled with. Yeah, that's an interesting point, isn't it? I don't know whether it's true in any art, in any of the other arts. I mean, you mentioned Steve Buscemi, and it's an interesting point. And I think Alex Capranos in the book says that you know, a, um, a writer like Charles Bukowski, we were interested in him until his death. And I suppose you can say exactly the same about Margaret Atwood or Clint Eastwood or, uh, you know, Meryl Streep. She just goes from strength to strength. Whereas the pop stars seem to think that they have to remain young and vibrant. And also, I guess, as per, you know, Justin Hawkins from The Darkness, a little outside the industry. They don't want to sell their soul in the way that he believes and act like Maroon 5 or Coldplay. He did, you know, his band didn't necessarily want to remain commercially successful. They wanted to remain 
counterculture heroes in, in, in some ways. I mean, we tend to look up to and live vicariously through rock stars in the way that we don't with with other artists, do we? You know, we, I guess we put posters of them up on our wall and we look up at them. And even, you know, the position of the stage, the stage is higher than we are. So we are gazing up adoringly at them so we can bow down. I love Margaret Atwood, but I've got no posters of her on my wall. So <laughs> the pop star, yeah, wants to remain this kind of Jim Morrison-esque, complicated person who who lives a lot of their life behind dark glasses and remains quite enigmatic. And, you know, Justin Hawkins is an interesting example because the moment life became comfortable for him, he threw a spanner in the work. So happy marriage didn't seem to work for him. He's later confessed that he confesses in the book that he thinks he may suffer from ADHD. And he told me that any time a relationship came along, whether it was sibling relationship or a band relationship or you know, a spousal relationship, he did his best to ruin it because he thrives on 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 danger, on 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 disharmony, and that's how he makes art. So obviously, people like him don't really function in normal society in the way that I do. I can take the train into work every morning. I'm polite to people around me. I don't wear a cat suit without underwear. He does all of these things. So we kind of look <laughs> at these people and they think, you know, they genuinely are as corny and as cliched as it sounds square pegs in round holes. And I think that that's why we live vicariously through them, because perhaps a lot of us secretly want to be a square peg, perhaps. Right. Even if it is an affectation or a character, there is some semblance of believing in the authenticity of a musician and what they are singing that that some other disciplines don't have to contend with. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And what, what what I found fascinating in in interviewing so many of the people in the book and how honest they were with me was that I did get to see them without the sunglasses on, without a manager or a a PR sitting on in the room and saying, no, you can't ask that and they can't answer that, is that they are just as human and as vulnerable as the rest of us and as, you know, as screwed up as the rest of us are. But they have this inner determination. They want to lead the life they want to lead, even if they have to sacrifice things to get it. And that's what I found even more admirable than the leather trousers and the sharp cheekbones of 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, that even with all of their neuroses that are just like mine, they are still going to follow that path. And yeah, as I said, I, I kind of came away thinking, gosh, I could learn so much from them. And, and you know, we all could. And as we were alluding to before, as much as I wrote the book for music fans, I had hoped that maybe today's music stars would read it, not because of anything I have to say in the book, but because of what the pop stars themselves have to say in the book. You know, this is a famously an industry that eats people up and spits them out once they're done with them. And there have been many casualties over the years, but slowly pop stars today are wiser and cannier because so many people crashed and burned. So I don't think we will see the likes of to name, I don't know, one or two, Taylor Swift or Billie Eilish, crash and burn in the way that people did in the 70s and the 80s because they have learned from them. And I hope there are lots of cautionary tales in the book of people who did maybe have a hard time or who were pressed a little too hard. So many acts in the book found that when they did get success, they were on that merry-go-round and their management and the record labels didn't want them to take any time off because they had to milk it for as long as they can. So quickly write another song, quickly write another album, go back out on tour. Uh, Recently, 
for a newspaper, I interviewed Sharon Van Etten and she was saying that model has to change. She no longer wants to be album tour, album tour. She wants to live a life. She wants to have a partner. She wants to be there when her son, as her son is growing up. She wants to do different things. Maybe she wants to act every now and then. Maybe she wants to write for other people. She doesn't want to follow this. She's seen what's happened to artists who get burned out. And as I said earlier, so many in my book were burned out. They were never encouraged to take time out. So the band split up and they never quite got back to where they were before. So I do get the sense that things are changing now. And because we always talk about mental health. So maybe finally the music industry is going to take a little more care of its artists and they will endure longer and we will allow them to endure longer. That's so, okay. My, I'm going in, my mind is going in two different directions. One is sort of returning to this idea of the musician being particularly fused to their art, which we sort of keep them there because we idolize this image. Yeah. And, but then the other experience of that, obviously the artist and themselves when they're fused with their art, what that must feel like personally when your art goes out of style or yeah. when, you know, you're sort of on your way down, there may be, it may be more painful if there's not as much mm. of a gap between you and your art. Yeah. And right. it's also very difficult to then reinvent yourself or to find anything that fills that vacuum. So time and again, you know, as I said, I speak to people like Natalie Merchant and Suzanne Vega and Bob Geldof and Robbie Williams, Happy Mondays, and Shirley Collins, who's an old folk artist from the 1970s here in, in the UK, Eurythmics and The Police. And it, all of them said that when the band splits up or when music leaves them or they, they crash and burn and they end up at the age, the ancient age of 30, and then think, what will I do for the rest of my life? All of them do kind of panic and think, so much of my life was wrapped up in that, so much of my identity. And because this isn't a nine to five job, so many of them said, you know, I don't have any hobbies. Mm -hmm. I don't have any friends outside of music. My friends are or is the music industry because that's where I've been for the last five, 10, 15 years. When you do suddenly fall out of favor for whatever reason, you find that people leave you it's almost like a mass exodus. You know, they no longer return your calls because you are no longer the pop star. So, yeah, a lot of them think, oh, I've lost my identity. Who, who am I again? And finding your identity again isn't impossible, but it does take work. And, yes, a lot of them struggled, you know, and there were some dark years. And some of them, you know, talked about suicidal lows or depression or alcohol and um, uh, drug addiction. Uh, uh, yeah, bankruptcy, they'd spent all of their money or they didn't ever really get as much money as they thought because mm -hmm. they had um, imaginative, shall we say, management and accountancy teams who ran away with their money to a beach in Rio. <laughs> so it's just it's just awful what happened to them and they suffered. But the ones who spoke to me didn't let it beat them. You know, they 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 kind of came back. And that's another fascinating aspect about music that I don't think we see in any of the other arts is that if you have had a hit or a few hits, those songs will continue to work for you in your absence. And they may well be the thing that brings you back into vogue and into fashion later down the line. Some people struggled with that. They didn't want to be known for this one song. <laughs> Some people yeah. were like, that's my bread and butter and I'm grateful for it. Yeah. It seemed like there's different reactions. Yeah. I mean, it'd be, you know, it'd be interesting to learn what you think about that as, you know, as both of you as songwriters. It's, I think you know, and I've never been able to write a song. I wouldn't even know where to begin. But so I found that the artist had to make peace with that. So 
I think everyone in the book has a song that a good chunk of people in, in the Western world will know, maybe, you know, even beyond that. Mm-hmm. And so many of them were so grateful to have a tiny slice of musical history that if they were no longer able to write new songs, they could just rely on that. But others were entirely creative beings who just said, well, look, I'm very proud of my back catalogue, but if I'm not going to go barking mad, I need to write and record more songs. Again, referring to Glastonbury because it's only just happened. Paul McCartney headlined on Saturday night. And, you know, he made this really poignant remark, I think after the first few songs, he said, God, when I sing Beatles songs, all of you hold up your phones and I can just see a sea of white, you know, because you're filming me. When I do more recent songs, it's like darkness. You've all disappeared. And then he laughed and said, well, I don't care. I'm going to sing my new songs anyway. <laughs> and that's what, you know, the, the Rolling Stones have struggled with for for decades now. You know, I've seen them twice in concert and it's the same both times, you know, 15 years separated. I still them in 1919 and 2005. And they play songs from 1968 and 1970. And that must be hard for them because they keep on writing songs. You know, one of the artists I speak to in the book is Stuart Copeland from The Police. And they did an unusual thing, you know, really unusual in that they split up at the height of their career. I think it was 1985. You know, by that stage, they'd achieved everything they could achieve. They hated one another and made no secret about it. And Stuart Copeland immediately went off and started writing music for film. And he said he no longer had to be a pop star. He was the one that said to me, I no longer had to wear leather pants. I could just wear clothes from The Gap. And I was a suburban dad and pleased with it. The police were never going to get back together. And of course, the police got back together because I think every band does. And I think it was 2007, 2008. And they played this enormous world tour, which I think raked in something like $800 million dollars. And I said, so obviously many, many people all around the world went to see them and were hugely happy to witness, you know, their favorite band from the 1980s back again in a new century. And I asked him whether it ever occurred to them to write a new song because they were together again for another 12 months. And he said that they'd often thought about it, but they realized there was no point. Mm. He believed that without question, they could write songs better than Message in a Bottle. But Message in a Bottle had lived inside Mm-hmm. the fans head for 30 years he said it doesn't matter if we can write a better songs nobody needs a new song from the police you know you could level the same argument right. at ABBA you know ABBA have recently come back albeit as avatars they came back with two songs that I thought were amazing but the album didn't connect quite as well uh, but that doesn't matter to you know they, they were happy they, they, they had songs there Benny and Bjorn had never stopped writing so they released them but you know Stuart Coburn said there's just no point. Nobody wants to hear. So we're just going to play. But crucially, the moment that the band stopped, he went back to writing and recording songs for um, film because that's what gives him creative fulfillment. Other bands aren't so lucky. They, you know, they try and write new songs and they want them to be more popular. You know, I always got the sense that Tom York from Radiohead doesn't like playing Creep. Ideally, he would want everyone to forget Creep ever existed because mm-hmm. he's now in The mm-hmm. Smile and he wants to be in The Smile. And that's fair enough. It's, as I said, it's, it depends on the artist and the artist's temperament. And I guess we all know artists have quite temperaments. <laughs> they can be quite temperamental people. I feel like one thing that I, I thought of and just you and I talked about when we were discussing the book was beyond the subject of the book themselves, um, Nick, how, how did your feelings about fame 
uh, change or become enhanced by by going through the process of writing it. Yeah, well, it certainly confirmed to me what I think I'd always had a sneaking suspicion of, is that there's nothing worse in life than becoming famous. It just, <laughs> you know, and obviously I, I was writing from the 1990s onwards, so before social media. Now I have no concept how someone like Billie Eilish can exist and survive with her sanity intact. My 16-year-old daughter is a huge fan. And she always comes to me saying, oh, Billie Eilish has been cancelled today. And you think, well, again, because anything she says or does, the colour of her hair, and you think it's so difficult for her to, to exist in a world, not only where we, the collective we, all have an opinion about it, but we know about it because we all post about it. And I think every act in the book would say that they'd been burned by success. So somebody like Robbie Williams, who I know isn't huge in America, but is huge everywhere else, fame for him was an addiction and he needed it because he had such low self-esteem despite all of his achievements. Mm. And every time he had, he got it again or he, he revived it. He felt further disassociated from himself because he thought fame is horrible. It's just another addiction. And he's had many addictions over the years. One of my interviews is Natalie Merchant. And she found that the moment 10,000 Maniacs became successful, she hated what she had become because she felt that she had just become a marketing tool for the, the record label to sell more 10,000 Maniacs tickets and albums. And she said, well, hang on, we've done it on our own terms. Why, why change that? And they said, no, 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 we can sell more. So let's not no longer call you 10,000 Maniacs. Let's call you Natalie Merchant and 10,000 Maniacs. And when we do photo shoots, why don't you step forward a little bit and the guys in the background can kind of blur slightly out of focus. And then she would turn up to other photo shoots and she would be asked to wear bikinis. And she was thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on. This isn't, this isn't what I want at all. So she deliberately stepped away from 10,000 Maniacs, again at their height, uh, to, to, to eke out a smaller solo career. But her first solo album, 1995's Tiger Lily, was bigger than anything 10,000 Maniacs right. <laughs> had, had achieved. So she said, I found myself on the carousel again. But by that stage, she was slightly older, more confident, and took more control. So she, like many of the people in the book, just started to dictate to the record labels rather than have them dictate to her. I don't think anybody likes being, feeling like product. You know, you could be, you're either a, a singer-songwriter or a can of Coke. It's more or less the same thing. And yeah, nobody really likes that. So fame just seems to warp people's view uh, and also hamper their ability to write songs because they are having to to write songs almost by committee so the record label will like it so the the radio stations will like it so it can soundtrack the super bowl at halftime and many of them want that which is fine there's nothing wrong with that but just as many if not more don't want that mm -hmm. they want to follow their own muse even if it takes them down weird and wonderful corners yeah i i you know some of the the themes of the book are loss of agency as yeah. you move through the, the machine. And I think something that is, can be such a struggle is an artist. I think many artists start out with sort of purity to their art where they, you know, want to create what they're inspired to create. And, mm. but they want, I think most people want to be recognized or want to be seen. And once you yeah. hit a certain amount of fame or you're getting results and getting that, that recognition, 
perhaps you begin considering more, well, what will people respond to? Or what does the industry want me to do? Yeah. And I imagine that that's a tension for a yeah. lot of the artists at that point. But also another thing that they think about is, oh gosh, do I have anything else to mm. say? I yeah. said it so well <laughs> on that first album. You know, can I say it a second time? Can I say it a 15th time? Because, you know, our emotions are infinite, but the ways in which we express them, I guess, are finite. You know, I'm angry again. I'm in love uh, again. I'm divorced again. So, yeah, as I said earlier about trying to find other words that rhyme with love, it must be quite difficult. I interview Gary Lightbody uh, from Snow Patrol in um, in the book, and he was fascinating because his band tried to make it for a long time. They were a very slow overnight success and they really hit their commercial peak in the wake of Coldplay's success because like Coldplay they wrote incredibly emotive songs that sounded really good when you were waving your phone up in the air mm. at the same time and he quite liked doing that and he's also very good at doing it but then once he'd done it for two albums he thought okay well I'm going to try something different now I'm going to look into my Irish roots and of course the record label was saying no 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 come back we don't want Irish roots no no you know but I think uh, they had an album called 100 Million Sons and there's a 16-minute song on that. That's mm -hmm. never going to soundtrack the Super Bowl at halftime. That's never going to sound like Chasing Cars or Run. Nobody wants, you know, a 16-minute song in which Gary Lightbody strokes his chin and plays a very long guitar solo. <laughs> but that's what he wanted to do there. And what I found fascinating, um, you know, somebody else was um, Kevin Rowland from Dexy's Midnight Runners. And, you know, everybody knows Come On Eileen. And it's, for me, that song is a life force. It's like plugging, you know, that plug into a socket and thinking, oh my God, look, electricity. It's, it's just, it's that vibrant and that remarkable. And not unreasonably, everybody wanted more of the same. But he said, I have no idea how I wrote that song in the first place. I'm glad I did, but I didn't particularly want to write it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. So by the band's fourth or fifth album, he was writing what was coming to him. Another interviewee was Joan Armour Trading. And she says, you know, Joan Armour Trading is very religious. And, and she, you know, she says, I don't write the songs. The songs literally fall from the sky, from wherever, he the heavens or wherever, into me mm -hmm. and out through my fingertips onto the piano. And I play them. So in the late 70s and early 80s, they were hit singles. By the late 80s into the early 90s and into the 2000s, the 2010s, they were still coming to her. But they were no longer hit singles. And she said, I don't care. I'm not. I'm not a product. I'm mm -hmm. not doing something to get into the top 40 all the time. I'm just writing what comes to me when it comes to me. If you like it, great. If you don't, I don't really care. That's and many me. of them have that struggle, don't they? That They write what they write because they write it, not because right. it's going to yeah, sound good in a TV advert or on the radio or in a James Bond film or whatever. That, I mean, that story to me, you know, speaks to the personalization. It sounds like she was able to create a gap. This isn't me. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the channel, but whatever yeah. happens, happens, and I'm okay with that. And that space yeah. gave her a little more peace. It's almost like schizophrenia, isn't it? Robbie Williams uh, calls himself Rob, and all of his friends call him Rob. So I'd interviewed him previously for magazine and newspaper articles, and I called him Robbie and because I, didn't, I don't know him. And he said, no, no, call me Rob. I'm not, you know, we're talking now. Uh, Robbie is that bloke on okay. stage. Mm -hmm. And so they have to separate. And I can, I can almost understand that, I guess, because as we were saying before about the adulation, because they have no idea why people are adoring them because he just sees a fuck up, you know, 
he 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 sees someone who's pretty screwed up and messed up and you know he there's a lot of self-loathing in his life or at least there was i think he's in a very happy place right now he's happily married with umpteen kids or at least four anyway he's now a painter um he's he's um there's a biopic being made of his life in which he acts as himself at some stage because of, of course he does. Um, so he's happy now. But yeah, in his early days, and especially in the post-take-that days, he wasn't really happy with who he was. So Robbie Williams was the person who could go out in front of 120,000 people a night and perform. But Rob, mm. who he is away from the stage and who he is to his family and friends, was someone entirely different. And Joan Armatrading was was much the same. She just, I think she told me that she was essentially a vessel. Mm-hmm. So she's not responsible for her song. She grew up not a fan of music. She liked comedy. So why music came to her, she has no idea. And I get the sense that lots of the, the people I spoke to were like that. Even those who had ostensibly retired from music hadn't retired. So Natalie Merchant told me that she'd retired. She didn't really want to do it mm-hmm. very much anymore. She was now teaching underprivileged kids um, arts and crafts. And that was more fulfilling to her than singing ever was. But Mm. she's just announced a new album for 2023. Tanya Donnelly from (laughs) Belly, who I loved in the early 1990s, wanted to do some good, honest work after she had a bit of a wobble after being nominated for a Grammy and when her band suddenly blew up on both sides of the Atlantic, stopped music and became a doula. Uh, And then she got the band back together again. And so I guess they see very different sides of themselves. They literally are selves. So this Mm -hmm. self is a pop star. This self is a mum or a dad. This self is an artist. And the the particular self who is the pop star is the one, in a way, an idealized version of themselves. They are the one with all the confidence, not all the answers, but all the confidence. Mm -hmm. And it's the confidence that carries them through. Definitely. And uh, I was telling Jess when we were talking about this yesterday, um, seeing Tanya Donnelly on there was especially exciting to me because I found Belly to be a real outlier when, when they, when they broke in terms of pop and being on the radio because Mm. her music is not very poppy. And, um, and then, you know, having two albums that were very Mm. unique and interesting and then going Mm. away and then was it was it 2019 or 2020 when they uh, must have been 2019 when they got back together yeah. to play some shows and and they came to Chicago and I was able to go and see them and it was something that oh. I was never ever expecting to have that opportunity and I think that um, and then I think they came out with a new album they did some B sides yeah. as well so I I, I want to I hope that people see. And I think the book does a very good job of kind of showing this, um, that the artists that do go away, then come back and, and produce new music, um, that, that their value, their value of the experiences is in that new music. You know, we Mm. love the youth, we love songs about love and heartbreak and fast times, but then having these people come back and write new music based on everything they've, they've gone through and having a mature look at stuff while it doesn't really scream you know top number one radio hit yeah. it's really great music and some and and i think um snow patrol he he also said like his his album after that long break was the best out music he's ever yeah. written yeah that's it it's, it's amazing isn't it because as we said earlier that 
the music industry is is all about novelty and the new. So while as music fans, we are incredibly fickle, we're, we're, we're like errant lovers, aren't we? We've got someone in every port, but we don't forget our first love. Mm. So yes, you know, I don't necessarily need to listen to Belly like I did in the early 90s, but I love that comeback album. And I suppose in a way I see I don't know, am I making any sense here? But I almost see myself reflected. They are aging. My gosh, look at yes. them now. But look at me now. And I've been there with them. And the fact that they are still there, I don't know, kind of gives me hope. I'm 53 now. And I that I'm such a, a terrible cliche. I've got to the stage now where I just listen to 80s music stations. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I love them. And I think, what am I kind of tapping into this? So I listen to them in the 80s. But then I go on to Spotify and I listen to their new music. And I think, wow. They are still there. They are still true to their themselves. And I kind of, I feel more personally connected to them. So they're no longer that poster on the wall. I'm no longer genuflecting, but I feel more of a kinship with them because I am aging right alongside them. And mm -hmm. I kind of admire that tenacity and that kind of hard graft. And so to, for me, as a fan of Tanya Donnelly, to speak to her now was really moving and touching and I love that she'd gone away and had a real life and that yeah. she'd also come back so she's still got that real life which is very active but she's still there and you know I, I imagine that you know it's been interesting to watch well it's always been interesting to watch Madonna since you know 1982 83 I think but she's had a tricksy midlife period because I guess someone of her fame would wouldn't she because she was always dividing people and you know, all she has to do now is a single photograph on Instagram and the world melts. But if she lives through, and we know she will, to the, her 60s and beyond, her third act is just going to be fascinating because if she, if she embraces mortality, then the woman who sang Borderline and Like a Virgin, then moving into her Leonard Cohen phase, is just going to be amazing. And I think the whole world will stop and stand still again and just watch up at her with just ferocious admiration thinking god she's still there wow yeah. and you know there dream. won't be detractors anymore we'll just all be saying she was the woman that essentially for many of us invented or reinvented pop and look she's still going yes that when you mentioned spotify it reminded me of a question we had for you which you know it was it was fun to read the book some of the songs i may not have remembered or or didn't know mm. um and so you know josh and i would go on Spotify and and look up the songs and sort of have this soundtrack as we read the book. And we were wondering if you have a Spotify playlist to accompany the book of the songs that are mentioned. I kept on meaning to do that because I thought it was a really good idea. And because I'm so thick, I didn't know how to do it. And I thought I'll ask somebody <laughs> clever and I've forgotten. But it was one of those things because it, it does send you. So my editor, who's this brilliant guy at my publishing house in the UK, I think he's 34, 35. And so because the nature of the book means I'm interviewing everybody from the ages of, I guess, 35 and upwards. He wasn't that familiar, but it's, he said it sent him down a rabbit hole, but also people my age, it sent them either reminding them of songs that they'd loved and forgotten or just introducing them to people. And I think that speaks to, the, you know, the overriding arc of the book is that it reminds us that, that music is always there and we're just waiting for us to either discover it or rediscover it. So yes, in a short answer, I would love to do that. And maybe one day I'll get around <laughs> to doing it because it's, you know, it's the idea that people are discovering music for the first time or, or rediscovering it because they've read something in my book is just thrilling. So I've done quite a few radio 
shows both here and in America since the book came out. And they've been playing songs from the book and it almost makes me feel a little bit like a DJ or DJ adjacent. And it's yeah. just such a thrill because I wrote the book because I'm such a music lover and I, I love pop stars, I guess. So yeah, it's, um, that's very close to me, that subject. And yes, I'd like to do it at some point and I hope I will. Okay. I think that's a great idea. I mean, especially because uh, a lot of the songs, even even people that are familiar with them, say a Chumbawamba song or Delamitri, we yeah. know one song out of a large, large catalog yeah. of music. And and to, to find those other songs and to hear them and just, it, yeah. it, it's, it's super rewarding as a reader. And I also love the fact that even bands that I may not have known anything about, and obviously this is true of every pop star that I haven't interviewed, has a story to tell. You know, I knew very little about Chumbawamba. And if I'm honest, I wasn't overly interested. You know, uh, Tub Thumping was a great song, a great one-hit wonder. There is such a story there that kind of, mm -hmm. to me, boggles the mind that they've mm -hmm. been going for 15 years beforehand as a profoundly political band. Never wanted to have a chart success. We're never going to have chart success. And then somehow they wrote a song in 1997, I think, that the whole world sung. And of course, they were going to throw away all of their principles and just jump on the bandwagon. They did anything but. They mm -hmm. upset the industry at every possible turn. They upset Simon Cowell, who has wanted to use that song on <laughs> America's Got Talent and Britain's Got Talent and The X Factor and Pop Idol and whatever else. And they've, they're just agitators and they use their moment in the sun to highlight striking workers in the UK, striking workers in the US. Um, and you think, what an interesting story. And, De you know, Delamitri had, in America, I think, that, that one big hit, uh, yeah. Roll, Roll With Me, was it called? Roll To been, Me. Roll yeah. To Me, that's right. And the way Justin Curry, the singer, told, you know, told it to me was that that song has essentially paid his mortgage for the last 25-odd years because that keeps on getting heavy rotation all over America on radio stations every day. It's a short, sweet, perfect pop song. And that has allowed him to sustain his career for the last 30 years and to indulge himself um, and to write the kind of songs that he wants to write. And he's someone who didn't have 15 minutes of fame. He had five and a half minutes of fame. And you think that's incredible that there's a, a rich story there. And to my surprise, the book is full of that. And then it goes to the other extreme with someone like Terence Trent Darby, who was for a very short time, the biggest, sexiest pop star on the planet, and then not. And he had to deal with the and then not bit for quite some time. And yeah, there were just so many stories that they burst out of nowhere into the public eye, so I take notice. And then they disappear, and we, of course, forget all about them. But they are hiding, they're lurking there somewhere, mostly online these days and on social media. Mm. And they are waiting to be rediscovered. And as I found, they've all got amazing stories to tell. The fun of the book is very much in the details of the stories of theirs. I loved the Chumbawamba was one of my favorite stories. I, I really admired their <laughs> spirit. It was, it was great. And I remember not, my brother. Not many people have that spirit, do they? Yeah. It's, it just feels like rock and roll to me. Yeah, very, very much rock and roll. Yeah. Punk. The spirit of punk. Punk. Yeah. Um, yeah. I so very much appreciate your time. I, if you don't mind, I have just a couple more things that I, I definitely wanted to touch on before we end. Is that all right? Absolutely, yeah. So as a musician and also as a professional therapist, of course, oh, of course. Uh, there was a, a line from this that stood out to me I wanted to ask your thoughts on. So this is from Simon Rowbottom of the Boo Radleys. Mm. The quote was, 
a lot of someone's self-worth is very tied up in being a successful musician. And so Simon Rowbottom also went on to become a psychologist um, for some context. So he says, the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized it's not about being a musician, it's about being famous. And Mm. I wonder what your thoughts after all these interviews on that quote is. Well, I found because I've interviewed bands for many years and I've done lots of different kinds of writing and lots of different kinds of journalism, I found I would always go back to pop stars because they were so interesting. So lots of them, and they do talk about this in the book, come from difficult beginnings or frustrating beginnings. And they maybe they have low self-worth and low self-esteem. Or yeah, as we said earlier, they've got addiction issues already. Becoming a success on a world stage validates them and gives them an identity. So as we, yeah, we've talked about this earlier though, that when that goes away, they can kind of struggle to think, well, who am I? Am I, am I nobody now? Because nobody is, nobody loves me anymore. Nobody's looking at me on the street and running up to me and wanting an autograph. So yeah, I found that a lot of them really did struggle with that. And some go on to find a second life but many don't, which is why they refuse to let music go. In the book, I talk about Adamant. I didn't interview him for the book, but about 10 or 12 years ago, I interviewed him for a newspaper over here. And I found him interesting. He was one of the first pop stars I ever remember being different. You know, the pop stars I liked, like Squeeze or like, I was gonna say Blondie, but that's not true because Debbie Harry was just luminescent and amazing. And, and you know, it still is, but they could pass for ordinary people madness and squeeze adamant was something different and so when pop stardom ended for him or at least was diminished he really struggled and he told me that he was bipolar and that he had a surfeit of creativity that he said a bit like joan armadrain came crashing down on him all the time and it needed an outlet when it when he had an outlet as a pop star he could manage his his condition, the, the way he sees the world and the way he operates within the world because he had so much to do and people looking up at him and adoring him and he was releasing albums. When that went away and there was not that demand, he didn't really know what to do with himself. And I met him at his house and it was essentially a shrine to mm. Adamant through the ages. So there were posters. He was playing Adamant music uh, downstairs in his bedroom. When I went down to the, use the toilet, I passed his bedroom and I heard the music of Adam and the ants. And I thought, is that a coincidence? Is that on purpose? His his autobiography was, there was a leaning tower of his autobiography. There were ticket stubs, there were gold, platinum, silver discs. And I guess that was his way of reminding himself who he was. And I thought there was real poignancy there. We all need to be reminded that we are worth something. And if we are, as I said earlier, lucky or gifted enough to have this incredible talent to go out and touch the world, why wouldn't you remind yourself of that? It's like looking through old photo albums or scrolling through your phone, you know, a a holiday four years ago and thinking, oh, I remember that. I was happy then. That's what Adam Adam was doing in analog rather than on digital. So, yeah, I found that lots of people kind of struggled and also nothing really compares for them to a life in music. So yeah, some of those who go on to do other jobs, you know, Simon Robottom is a good example. Again, I didn't know that much about Boo Radley's, but they had big success, brief success, but big success in the mid 1990s, just before Britpop. And then Britpop came and steamrolled through everything. And they were a spent force, or at least that's how they were perceived. 
So he is now a psychotherapist and you would think that's enough. But, you know, he is my age. I think he's 50 odd and wife, two children, probably has a dog, plays golf at the weekend. But even he continues, he's, mm. he's the back out on that nostalgia circuit. He doesn't want anything else but that. He says it's so much fun mm. to go back up on stage and it reminds me who I used to be. I'm perfectly happy with who I am today. But to be able to taste that again, to go up on stage and play two or three songs to an audience that only want those two or three songs from me and will scream and sometimes cry is, is, is an addiction, but it's a fairly safe one and it's one that I can manage. And I thought that was a really interesting insight into mm. what music can give you and what you can give back. And yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question entirely, but it's a way to remain plugged into all facets of your personality. I think the book itself really um, gives rise to uh, a lot of, just a lot of contemplation on, you mm. know, again, speaking to musicians who may be listening to this podcast um, and thinking about where you are in your career, where you'd like to be, it maybe contextualizes the journey a little bit. And I personally found the book very cathartic um, in okay, a certain good. sense, um, just thinking about the arc of a career, yeah. you know, where we've gone with our music. And, and I, I'm curious, I wanted to ask you, Nick, um, as, an, as an author and an artist yourself, how has the book impacted your own artistic or professional journey and goals? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to answer it. Um, it was a book that I'd wanted to write for a long time. I think it is very much a midlife one. The, the more I continued to interview pop stars, the more I wanted to focus on their real life and not their new album and the aging process. And so the fact that I was able to do it brought me an awful lot of satisfaction. The fact that it seems to have resonated with people is really nice. I've received so many emails and DMs and of people thanking me for writing it. And I said, I've always been a music fan, but I'm so fascinated. You know, I read lots of memoirs um, from people from all sorts of backgrounds. And I feel that I'm really interested in learning how people go through life, almost as if I want to pick up tips from them, even if I don't have much in common with them. I find it fascinating to learn how people live their lives. I wrote a, a health memoir a few years ago when I was, wasn't very well. And I found that even before then I was reading health memoirs because I thought it's fascinating to see how life has this habit of tripping you up. You know, it's never linear, is it? It's always a bit of a roller coaster. So to see how people cope gave me inspiration. Mm -hmm. So to be able to write a book about a bunch of people and have their peers then read it and say, gosh, it's given me inspiration is incredibly fulfilling for me. And it's made me realize as well that pop stars never really die. You know, we keep on learning that there's no such thing as a job for life anymore. But I think as I was writing this book, I thought, well, in one sense or in many senses, music is a job for life for musicians because they never really go away. You know, mm. Don McLean is one of my interviews mm. and he's an interesting character for all sorts of reasons, but he's 75 years old and still at it. The, the UK folk singer I mentioned earlier, Shirley Collins is 86. And she says, I just want to keep releasing albums while I have time. And, mm. and there is a 
there is an appetite. She keeps on getting five stars every time she releases an album. I think because the critics are just looking at someone of that vintage and with such an admiration that she's still cranking it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and yeah, they keep coming back. And there's one story in the book, um, again, a book, a, a band I didn't know much about because I'm just a little bit too young, an English punk band called The Only Ones, whose career was completely derailed by drugs. And then ultimately rescued by music, he'd finally kicked the habit because their one and only hit, um, Another Girl, Another Planet, refused to die. It was used in a mobile phone ad, Blink-182 covered it, REM and The Cure covered it. And so tour managers would ring them up saying, you can tour, you know, you can get the band back together, stop arguing, kick the drugs and you can get back together. And so now Peter Perrett, the singer is in his 70s, is fairly convinced that he wasted much of his adult life to addiction. Mm. But he's kicked it now and he wants to live in order to make more music. And I, I felt so privileged to be able to tell those inspiring stories. A lot of the times when we we, we read about musical, you know, those early MTV interviews about bands who have crashed and burned, there was a kind of glee to tell the stories of how they had screwed up royally. You know, we love to hear about how bands imploded. I didn't really want to tell that kind of story. I didn't want to link into that kind of narrative. I didn't want it to be all schmaltzy and sweet and optimistic with your thumbs up, but I did want to tell honest stories. So a lot of the people in the book have suffered and and have had their own versions of crashing and burning, but they kind of got back up again and kept going. And I felt really privileged to be able to tell those stories because that's the human journey, isn't it? We do make mistakes. We do make terrible mistakes sometimes, uh, but we do, you know, make good on those mistakes and make good on those early promises and we find a way through and yeah simply I think to be able to tell those stories felt like a privilege to me would you say that we get at the risk of sounding like a member of Chumbawamba we get knocked down don't we and we get back up again yes and we we really do yes Nick thank you so much for your time it was such a joy to talk to you I love the book I, I I feel like this is a must read for musicians or anybody who's interested in music or just the pop industry Honestly, um, thank you so much for your time and for taking the time to read it. I uh, I hope I made some kind of sense uh, and didn't just, not that there wasn't too much verbal diarrhea, but I love talking to both of you. So thank you. Okay. I want to thank Nick Dwerden for his time today. That was an amazing conversation. I love the book. I think it's a must read for any musician. So go check it out. It's available in both hardcover and digital formats. I hope you guys are doing well. Visit musictherapypodcast.com for previous episodes and upcoming events. Music Therapy is hosted by Jessica Risker, produced by Sullivan Davis of Local Universe, and engineered by Joshua Wentz in Chicago. Peace and love until I see you again. Music